Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The following podcast contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're going to go down and go to hell. I'm going to come out and run. Time for 911. Where's your emergency? Oh, this is Sandy. We're pretty one look. One in the chest, one in the head. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out, that's when the cannibalism started, eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, oh we're now Carl Williams means to a copy tail and just pull the head of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little Cherub, cherub face, cherub face little boy who would, who, 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 whose life would be... I harm someone each time I kill someone to be an enormous amount of uh, uh, Especially at first, an uh, enormous amount of, of uh, horror, guilt, remorse afterwards. But then that impulse to do it again would come back even stronger. Novice psychopath Daniel Kelsall looked harmless, but this skinny 20-year-old with curly ginger hair was anything but. Inside this nerdish, owlish-looking man seethed a mass of cold anger, and his blackened heart beat with a desire to commit evil deeds. Daniel told mental health professionals about his thoughts of killing random strangers, but they didn't take him seriously, letting him slip through the cracks of an already overloaded system. One night, after finishing a shift at a restaurant, he enacted his evil and bloody ambition with deadly results. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraban. And this is Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. As a comedy true crime podcast, we sometimes use humour to lighten up horrifying stories, but never at the expense of the victims or their loved ones. If you think comedy has no business being associated with tragedy, then Bloody Murder may not be the podcast for you. Now, before we commence our sordid tales, we'd like to remind you that this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. We've had quite a few new ones join our fancy Patreon program, which we will thank individually after our story. If you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. As a patron, you have access to dozens of other episodes, including our side-splitting and head-decapitating first season and ad-free versions of all our regular episodes. As well as exclusive patron-only episodes where we play leapfrog with unicorns and tell even more murder stories. Levels above $5 receive stickers and handmade Barney badges. All right, Tara, let's get murdery. In February 1993, Daniel Jack Kelsall was born in Wellington, New Zealand. He was adopted at birth. His new parents had already adopted a boy two years earlier, and a few years after adopting Daniel, they adopted a baby girl as well. Daniel Jack Kelsall preferred to go by his middle name, Jack, 
We're not going to do that. Why not? I thought you liked the name Jack. I mean, it's a person's name. I do like the, the name Jack, you know, beanstalks and all of that, but I'm not going to do what he says because he's a scumbag murderer. Ah. According to Daniel and people close to him, he was brought up in a loving and supportive family environment and had always enjoyed a close relationship with his parents. It didn't seem to make much difference. Dark, quiet and intense, other children found him creepy and tended to keep him at a distance. That's how the other children treated me too. (laughs) The friends he did make usually regretted it. Daniel was a needy child. When he was separated from the few friends he had, he would hit out with some bad behaviour and he was particularly upset when one friend transferred to another school. His high school education ended prematurely when the Athena Montessori school he was attending closed down for some reason. Daniel attempted to complete his education by correspondence, but his efforts proved unsuccessful. He told people years later this was because he had undiagnosed autism, which made it difficult for him to concentrate. Others say he just had an undiagnosed laziness that made him easily distracted. Whatever the case was, eventually Daniel decided on a career as a chef. At 17 years old, he was enrolled in a hospitality course, completing a 12-month full-time food preparation and culinary arts certificate, after which Daniel commenced an apprenticeship as a chef. Only one year into his apprenticeship, his parents and sister moved to Sydney in order for his father to start a business there. His brother had already moved out of home, so Daniel was sent to live with a relative of a family friend. This was a dark time for Daniel. Without the support of his parents and sister, he fell into a deep depression. Now, at this point, Daniel may appear sympathetic. Don't be fooled. There are no excuses for his future actions. In late 2010, Daniel saw a psychiatrist. It was reported that Daniel suffered from sleep disturbances, thoughts of suicide, and that he had enjoyed inflicting pain on others in the past. Daniel was prescribed an antidepressant and an urgent referral was made to a mental health team. Another psychiatrist prescribed a low dose of Seroquel, which is an antipsychotic and mood-stabilising medication. After completing his chef apprenticeship, Daniel was more than happy to join his family in Sydney. Here he tried to pursue a career as a chef but found it a tad challenging. He said it was because of his undiagnosed autism and he was having trouble with the measurements of ingredients, such as the subtleties of a pinch of salt. According to Daniel, he also had no sense of time, so he constantly burnt things, overcooked food, and was always late. Yeah, maybe becoming a chef was not such a great idea for someone who isn't great with time. Yeah, maybe not. I bet Gordon Ramsay would have had some choice words for his culinary skills or lack thereof. No doubt. Others think him not being able to deal with the constant social interactions that the job demanded is what ultimately brought his chef career undone. In the end, he took a menial position as a kitchen hand and cleaner at the Sydney Cooking School, located on Military Road Neutral Bay, opposite the Oaks Hotel. Daniel would later tell a psychologist, Dr Nielsen, that he became aware of his homosexuality in early high school, but did not become sexually active until his late teenage years. Not that he got that much action. Daniel had never been in a long-term relationship. Yeah, well, I mean, we weren't all sexed up as teenagers. A lot of people, myself included, weren't exactly like, hey, babying our way through school all sexy like one of those 80s movies full of titties. (laughs) Nah, me too. Girls scared me. They still do. Nerdy Daniel was socially awkward and was interested more in intellectual rather than physical pursuits such as sports. 
Daniel liked role-playing games, Pokemon and video games. He also enjoyed reading fantasy and science fiction novels and playing chess. Well, you've just described at least half our audience. I know, I hadn't heard of this guy until you chose this case, but um, he sounds like someone I would have hung out with at high school. Now, everybody considered him harmless, but they didn't know about his other darker hobbies, which included collecting graphic autopsy photos and child pornography. After moving to Sydney, darker and darker thoughts filled Daniel's mind. As his descent into the abyss went on unabated, Daniel continued to take Seroquel and he increased the dose on medical advice. In September 2011, his GP referred him to a psychiatrist who he saw only once. Daniel tried to convince the psychiatrist that he had autism, but he was told he did not in fact have autism and was not bipolar. They said he was just depressed. Yeah, it looks like he didn't get the diagnosis he wanted. Yeah, exactly. When he saw the same GP in February 2012 to obtain another prescription for Seroquel, he was told that it was not available for him under the pharmaceutical benefits scheme for a person in his situation. He was told to see a psychiatrist. This was when Daniel decided to doctor shop. In May 2012, he saw Dr. Susan Ullman. She speculated in her notes about the possibility that Daniel might have ADHD and mild Asperger's with comorbid depression. She also recorded in her notes some dark feelings that Daniel had communicated to her. She wrote, The patient is having intrusive thoughts about killing people with a knife on his way home at night. She referred him to a psychiatrist at the Mind Care Centre at Broadway, a Dr. Matthew Bolton. He saw Daniel on June 6, 2012. Daniel once again spoke of experiencing thoughts of killing someone. Dr. Bolton referred Daniel to Dr. Abdul Saad, a psychologist. He saw Dr. Saad once a month for about a year. Dr. Saad reported that he found Daniel somewhat difficult to engage and that he had acute internalised anger issues, but despite this did not pose a threat to himself or others. This was even after Daniel discussed his thoughts about killing people. Daniel said there was no real reason for it and he'd not thought about the consequences. He said he'd taken a knife home late one night but had not met anyone that was right. When asked why he wanted to kill somebody, he told Dr. Saad that it would be for the thrill of it and the victim would be someone he described as a total random. He said he had no idea why he had these thoughts and that he did not want to actually act on them. Less than a mile from where 20-year-old Daniel resided with his parents in Neutral Bay lived 31-year-old Morgan Huxley. Morgan, like Daniel, grew up with a brother and sister, but this is where the comparison ends. Unlike Daniel, Morgan grew up to be an affable and well-liked young man. According to journalist Greg Callahan, writing about Morgan Huxley in the Sydney Morning Herald, Morgan wanted to help people from an early age. As a little boy, he had a habit of walking around tables in daycare, picking up the other kids' dirty dishes and ferrying them into the kitchen. He'd even try to do this in restaurants, much to the amusement of other patrons. God, I wish my kids would do that. Yeah, they do the opposite. They actually take the plates from the kitchen and put them in the lounge room. (laughs) The Huxley kids were mostly raised by their mother, famed children's book illustrator Dee Huxley. Morgan attended Lane Cove West Public School where he met Chris Maroney, a friendship formed that would endure into adulthood. As a teenager, Morgan's passion for the sea became so strong that his mum bought him his first boat, a tinny with rear wheels that he could push easily into the water. His mother recalls, When he wasn't out on his boat, he was playing soccer or under the bonnet of a car. After finishing high school, he came out to me and asked, Mum, do you mind if I don't become an artist? 
I thought it was the best thing. That is pretty hilarious. Most kids I know were worried about disappointing their parents because they wanted to be artists. Or if you tell your dad you want to be a ventriloquist or a magician. Well, yeah, that didn't go so well for you, did it? No, it really didn't. His sister Tiffany and brother Oliver were already graphic artists. Morgan studied at TAFE and spent a year in an ocean engineering course in Launceston, Tasmania. In 2009, Morgan Huxley started his own business, Huxley Marine, building jetties and boat sheds all over Sydney Harbour. Morgan had a dog called Senna. He really loved animals. He also adopted a lion and an elephant in Africa. Did they work with him at Huxley Marine? No. Why not? Lions aren't great at building jetties. Yeah, but elephants are really good in the water, though. You ever had one of them build you a boat shed? It's not pretty. So did they just all stay home together when he was at work? They lived in Africa. I thought you said he adopted them. He did, but not physically. Please tell me you're not pretending to be this daft. Nope, it's legit. (laughs) Morgan had plans with his sister Tiffany to go to Cape Town the following year to take part in a volunteer conservation research project. Although he'd been in a few long-term relationships with women, Morgan was currently single. He lived in a flat in Watson Street, Neutral Bay, a short distance from Military Road. He shared the unit with his flatmate, Jean Redmond, a 24-year-old physiotherapist from Ireland. In March 2013, Morgan and his best friend from primary school, Chris Maroney, were having a beer at their favourite pub, the Oaks Hotel, when Morgan told him a bizarre story. The week before, a guy, who he'd thought might be gay, followed him home from the pub to outside his apartment block. At first, Morgan thought that the young, small guy was just being friendly and lived in the same apartments, until he kept following him to his front door and walked straight past him to inside his flat. Chris would later say, Ah, Morgs told us he just pushed him out. He pretty much shrugged it off, and we started talking about other things. Six months later, on the afternoon of September 7th, Morgan drove to Lane Cove to attend an engagement party for his BFF, Chris. He was at the party for a number of hours, sinking many beers and chatting to friends. At the end of the party, at around 12.30am, he shared a taxi home to Neutral Bay with Chris and his fiancée, Philippa, who lived around the corner. Morgan asked them to join him for one last cheeky beer, but Chris was ready to throw in the towel, telling him, Nah, mate, we're done. Catch up tomorrow. Morgan got out of the taxi on Watson Street and walked alone towards the Oaks Hotel on the corner of Military Road and Ben Boyd Road for one last drink. He was barefoot as he'd left his thongs or flip-flops at the party. He was wearing cargo shorts and a blue t-shirt. Meanwhile, Daniel Kelsall had just finished work across the road from the Oaks Hotel at the Sydney Cooking School. He spotted Morgan and followed him to the convenience store next to the pub. Daniel stood behind him as Morgan tried to use the ATM. Morgan's drunken fingers were unsuccessful. Morgan then headed to the fancy rear bar of the Oaks, but he got turned away by the bouncer, probably because he wasn't wearing any shoes. Morgan then tried the front bar and walked in unimpeded. He ordered a schooner of beer, plonked himself on a bar stool and eyeballed his phone. Morgan Huxley did not know that a skinny 20-year-old with curly ginger hair and glasses was watching him through the window. Morgan only managed to finish one beer before a barmaid told him it was closing time. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. CCTV footage showed Morgan entering the Oaks Hotel at 1.01am, downing one beer, leaving at 1.28am and walking in the direction of his flat. The footage also showed Daniel Kelsall following him. 
Daniel followed close behind Morgan, at times breaking into a jog so as to catch up. Slung over Daniel's right shoulder was a blue Phillips fox bag containing a chef's apron, jacket, Yu-Gi-Oh trading cards and a large Japanese stainless steel kitchen knife. Daniel was immediately behind Morgan as he crossed at the lights at the Military Road and Watson Street intersection. Daniel then followed Morgan on his short walk along Watson Street to his ground floor flat. He watched him go through his front door. Morgan's flatmate, Jean Redmond, heard Morgan come home and go to his bedroom just after 1.30am. She rolled over and attempted to resume her sleep. The next thing she heard was what she thought was a knock on the front door, but she wasn't sure. She then heard a second and louder knock. It was Daniel. Jean chose to ignore the knocking, assuming that it was just a friend of Morgan's. Daniel tried the door handle and found it was unlocked, so he entered the flat. It was unlocked? Yeah, yeah. According to his friends, uh, Morgan was in the habit of leaving his front door unlocked sometimes. After entering the flat, Daniel went upstairs where he found Morgan lying on his bed, asleep or incapacitated by alcohol. Daniel pulled down Morgan's shorts and touched his penis. This must have roused him from his slumber, and it must have been quite a rude shock to wake up to. Ah, oh, fuck yeah. Having your wang grabbed by a stranger in the middle of the night would scare the shit out of me. His amorous advances rejected. Daniel then stabbed Morgan 28 times in his back, head and neck with the Japanese knife. The terrified Morgan must have known what was happening and tried to fight back as he sustained some defensive wounds on his hands. Daniel then left Morgan's apartment and returned to his home in Spruceton Street, Neutral Bay. He disposed of the knife on the way and it was never recovered. The next thing Jean Redmond heard was at about 2.30am. She heard some shuffling around in Morgan's room and some strange noises. She heard a thump and some mumbling sounds. She then heard snoring, but louder than what she thought to be normal. This continued for about five minutes, so she decided to get up and investigate. She found Morgan covered in blood, lying on the floor in the doorway of his bedroom. His shorts were pulled down, exposing his penis. The noises Jean heard must have been caused by Morgan getting up from where he had been stabbed on the bed, shuffling towards the doorway, and then collapsing. Horrified Jean, in a panic, rang 999, not realising the emergency number in Australia is triple zero. Oh, that's right. She's Irish, so she'd be used to dialing 999 for emergencies. Jean, realising a mistake, rang her boyfriend who called triple O. Jean attempted to perform CPR until ambulance officers arrived. The officers observed a large puncture wound to the neck and a number of stab wounds on the torso, upper arms, back and head. There was also a significant amount of blood on the bed. In a speeding ambulance, paramedics spent 23 minutes desperately trying to save Morgan. He was taken to the Royal North Shore Hospital but was pronounced dead shortly after arrival. Daniel Kelsall was in his pyjamas happily playing video games when he heard the wails of ambulance and police sirens in the distance. An autopsy examination determined that Morgan had died as a direct result of multiple stab wounds inflicted by a sharp knife. The injuries included internal hemorrhaging, penetration of the chest cavity, injury to the lungs, severing of the cartoid artery and damage to the jugular vein. A post-mortem x-ray revealed a small piece of metal deeply embedded in Morgan's skull. Such was the frenzy of the attack the tip of the knife had broken off. When Chris Moroni woke up later that morning, he and his fiancée Philippa decided to walk to his parents' place in Lane Cove, where he'd left his car the night before. Morgan had also left his car there. 
He reached Morgan Street and found it blocked off to traffic with forensic teams scouring garbage bins, garden beds and drains. He phoned Morgan to tell him about the police activity in his street, but the message went straight to voicemail. At about the same time, Dee Huxley, Morgan's mother, got a visit from two Belmain police officers who informed her of her son's murder. While detectives started to investigate the murder of Morgan Huxley, a media circus ensued, with Sydney's Daily Telegraph being the worst culprit and getting it seriously wrong. It started with the headline, Spurned Lover, a Murder Suspect. Homicide detectives said a female killer was the strongest line of investigation. He was very popular with the ladies. A day later, it went with the headline, Ladies' man murder. Morgan was killed by a woman, says ex-lover. So, like, how did the ex-lover know what happened? Well, she didn't, of course. It was just insensitive speculation. It turned out it was actually the daughter of Australian TV actress Paula Duncan, who he'd once dated, and I'm guessing that it didn't end very well. On September 19, the Daily Telegraph was at it again, printing a headline, Loved to Death, Up to 14 Women Quizzed Over Murder. Again, a complete work of fiction. Other descriptions of Morgan read, ladies' man, playboy, Casanova, and knowing ladies' man. Hey, baby. ABC's Media Watch hit back at the Daily Telegraph by saying, no opportunity was missed to claim Morgan Huxley lived fast and loose, with the obvious implication being he deserved his fate. It's pretty despicable, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. It actually sounds a lot more like how women are treated by the media. than It really does, yeah. yeah. The Daily Telegraph didn't care and ran more articles such as Lady Killer. Was North Shore playboy Morgan Huxley killed by a love gone wrong? As you can imagine, Morgan Huxley's family were appalled by this depiction of Morgan. They later told of a reporter who repeatedly knocked on their door, then shoved a business card under it with the handwritten scrawl, talk to us and we'll print the truth, like they'd not been printing the truth till that point, obviously. Well, they hadn't. Still, I wouldn't have expected them to acknowledge no. it. In a statement to ABC's Media Watch, the Huxley family responded, while grieving and trying to deal with the shock of losing our dear Morgan in this heinous crime, despite our request for privacy and respect, we were tortured further by the relentless, incorrect and sensationalised reporting of Morgan and the circumstances surrounding his murder. We'll be back with more of The Novice Psychopath after this. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, Barney, what time is it? It's True Crime Nerd Time. Hooray! True Crime Nerd Time. True Crime Nerd Time. True Crime Nerd Time. I love True Crime. True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true or fiction crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV series, graphic novel, song, or just about anything that has scratched your crime-obsessed itch. You can record your voice, just do it on your phone, we'll play it, or write it, and we'll read it out. 
And we have one here from Jason Phillips, and he tells us about the crime author, Michael Conley. And he writes, Hey guys, I hope that lockdown 2.0 isn't driving you guys crazier than normal. Too late. Well, it is. Way too late there, Jason. Yeah, too late, hot plate. Way. Oh, that ship. (laughs) That ship sailed so long ago, I can't even see it from here. Yeah, and it sunk to the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, yeah, it did, and I was on it, and now I'm dead. And it's on fire, which is weird because it's at the bottom of the ocean. But hey, that's just that was 2020 kind of kind of vibe though, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, Jason writes, I have a subject for true crime nerd time that will satisfy both the fiction lovers and the true crime lovers itch. All right, get scratching. Michael Connolly is my favorite author. He began his career as a crime reporter in the home of interesting and wacky crimes Florida. Yeah, really? Do they have interesting and wacky crimes in Florida, Tara? I don't know. Oh, well, that's the first I've heard of it. Ah. After he and two co-workers wrote an article involving interviews with survivors of an airline crash, which they were shortlisted for a Pulitzer Prize, he took a job as a crime beat reporter for the LA Times. This provided him with the material for his non-fiction novel, Crime Beat, a collection of his articles about the more interesting crimes he covered. He's probably best known for his book series starring Hieronymus Bosch. Yeah, not the painter. No, the different, different dude. Mm. It's a coincidence. I mean, there are a lot of Hieronymus Bosches out there, right? Oh, it's, my neighbour's called Hieronymus Bosch. Yeah, yeah. I really like her too. She's cool. Hey, Hieronymus. Yeah, we call her Deb. Yeah, well, we're Aussies. Yeah. This series has been turned into an Amazon series, which is now in its fifth season. Harry Bosch is an LAPD homicide detective who goes by the credo, everybody counts or nobody does. Everyone's a cunt or nobody is. You said that wrong. (laughs) His life is greatly affected by the unsolved murder of his mother and his subsequent trip through the foster system. After a tour in Vietnam as a tunnel rat, he came back to LA and joined the police department. The novels follow the ups and downs of his career as he does whatever it takes to clear his cases no matter who was involved. His lack of political savvy and a solid view of right or wrong does not always work for him well, but he is excellent at what he views as his calling. I bet his captain's always busting his balls, right? Oh, yeah, totally. He's a rule breaker, but he gets the job done. Yeah, he gets results, stupid chief. Yeah, like Pug Detective. That's right. Michael Connolly has also released the first season of his true crime podcast called Murder Book. It follows the 30-year history of a cold case that involves a carjacking gone wrong, a suspect who was a gang member turned federal police officer, and the dogged determination that was necessary to bring justice to a family that long gave up on the thought. I have been reading this book since I was in middle school and I have watched Harry Bosch develop and grow over the years. With his experience in the criminal justice system as a reporter, the stories he writes have a real feel of authenticity and believability to them. I hope everyone enjoys his body of work as much as I have and that everyone stays safe. Thank you guys for everything you do for us listeners and your dedication to keeping us laughing. Goodbye and adios, Jason Phillips. Well, thanks, Jason. That author is Michael Conley, the details of which will be in the show notes. Now, if you'd like to submit a true crime nerd time, visit our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for instructions on how to contribute. Is it still 2020? I'm afraid so, Tara. But it feels like it's been decades. Uh, Decades? More than decades. Oceans of time. Oceans of time. 
Is everything going on in the world at the moment and the way this year is panning out interfering with your ability to be happy? Is something stopping you from achieving your goals? Have you had about as much as you can take and you're not sure what to do about it? Or perhaps all of this is just making other stuff you have to deal with even harder. We're both big believers in therapy and there's no better time than now to take care of your mental health. BetterHelp is there for you no matter where you are. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. And you can start communicating in under 24 hours. It's professional counselling that produces real results, not self-help. And you can communicate with your counsellor at any time. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. All without having to leave the house, which is fantastic because <laughs> we're pretty much not allowed to anymore. Well, that's right. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches. They make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counselling and financial aid is available. And it's a service you can access worldwide. You can be communicating with licensed professional counsellors who have a broad range of expertise and specialise in areas such as family conflicts, anger, trauma, depression and anxiety. And anything you share is confidential. It's convenient, professional and very affordable. If you want to start living a happier life today, connect with BetterHelp. As a Bloody Murder listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counsellors in all 50 states of the USA. Get matched with a counsellor that suits you by simply filling out the questionnaire to help them assess your needs. If you don't believe us, check out all the positive testimonials on their website. So visit betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder. That's betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder. And now for the conclusion of The Novice Psychopath. Detectives were not interviewing ex-lovers of Morgan Huxley. In fact, they were concentrating their efforts on examining CCTV footage from around the Oaks Hotel. They quickly determined that a young man had followed Morgan as he walked home from the pub. Police canvassed local business owners around the Oaks and showed them the footage on a laptop. Daniel Kelsall was identified by a barista working in the cafe at the front of the Sydney Cooking School, and his identity was confirmed by Brett Deverell, Daniel's boss. Detectives went to Daniel's home and spoke with him. He agreed to accompany them to North Sydney Police Station, where he voluntarily participated in an interview. During the 90-minute interview, Daniel was asked why he appeared in the CCTV footage running behind Morgan. Daniel replied, and this is, a, this is a curly one, Oh, it was cold and mum always tells me if you're cold, go for a jog. What? Daniel appeared to adopt an air of helpfulness, but it was all lies. He was asked what he kept in his shoulder bag and Daniel replied, an apron and my box of Yu-Gi-Go trading cards. Your Yu-Gi-Go what? Asked one of the detectives. When detectives questioned why he was walking in the opposite direction of home, Daniel claimed he was going back to the cooking school to check that he'd switched the lights off. I don't imagine they would have given him the responsibility of switching the lights off, quite frankly. I don't think you're qualified to switch off the no, lights. No, no, I don't think he's even allowed to do it at home. Daniel admitted that he'd seen Morgan earlier at the Easy Mart convenience store and that Morgan had asked whether he wanted to use the ATM, but Daniel had told him no. He told police he saw Morgan again on Military Road, but they never spoke. 
He claimed it took him longer to walk home than the usual 15 minutes because he'd been distracted by items left out for the council pickup. Oh, was it hard rubbish day? Yeah, it was hard rubbish day. So, does all of this seem plausible to you? Oh, uh, no, none of it seems plausible to me. No. I'm a non-believer. De- detectives then asked Daniel to volunteer a DNA sample. Daniel didn't answer right away. After an awkward silence, Daniel replied with a firm but polite, No. They told him they just wanted to exclude him as they collected DNA and fingerprints from the crime scene. Still, he refused, saying that giving police his DNA made him uncomfortable. Yeah, I'm sure getting stabbed to death made Morgan uncomfortable too. If this wasn't enough to make detectives suspicious, a phone call from Daniel two days later really put him in the frame. Daniel told lead investigator Detective Senior Sergeant Mark Dukes, Oh, I wasn't telling you the entire truth. You know when I said I hadn't spoken to that guy? Well, I did. Dukes arranged to meet Daniel in a car park behind Woolworths in Neutral Bay. Oh, God, was he wearing a trench coat? He told the detective that he did speak to Morgan on the side of Military Road. He described Morgan as upset and depressed, so Daniel said to Morgan, Can I cheer you up? He claimed the pair had consensual sex back at the Watson Street apartment, after which Morgan fell asleep and he decided to leave. Okay, but Morgan wasn't attracted to men, so that uh, that seems odd for a variety of reasons. It seems pretty unlikely, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah, it does. Daniel added, as he was going out the door, he saw a blonde woman walking towards the unit. I think that's why he got murdered, explained Daniel. Why didn't you report this earlier? asked Detective Dukes. I was scared, he replied. I thought I was the only person terrified by seeing blonde girls. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, it's a blonde lady. Run! Come on. Detective Dukes was dubious and his well-trained nose smelt bullshit. Yeah, look, it sounds as though stupid Daniel's just trying to cover his ass because he knows he probably left behind DNA and fingerprints. I would say that's it. After Daniel was taken in for a further interview, on legal advice he clammed up. Loose lips sink ships. Oh, his ship is already going down. Good. Oh, dig this, Tara. While sitting in the tiny interview room, in silence with two detectives, Daniel creepily said, Well, you could cut the air with a knife. Oh, you didn't mention he was a stand-up comedian. The dumbfounded detectives were speechless. Well, they weren't allowed to speak to him anyway I guess (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know but but they would have been anyway his shoulder bag was seized and while he was at the station a search warrant was executed on his apartment police removed clothing a laptop and two knives from his kitchen after an audit of equipment at Daniel's place of work the Sydney cooking school it was ascertained that one knife was missing After taking Daniel's DNA, it was sent to the forensics lab. Two weeks later, it was matched to DNA found on Morgan's penis. Spots of Morgan Huxley's blood were found on Daniel's shoulder bag and Daniel's fingerprint was identified as being on Morgan's bedroom door. On Daniel's laptop, police discovered his collection of grisly autopsy photos and animated child pornography. Detectives also talked to Daniel's psychiatrist, Dr. Matthew Bolton. He told the startled cops what Daniel told him, that he'd thought of killing someone else for the thrill of it, and going to jail would depend on whether I wanted to get caught. It'd probably be a total random with a knife, and I could hide the body. Meanwhile, as the evidence mounted against Daniel, he was released. 
Although he had been arrested, detectives decided not to charge him just yet. Daniel went back to working at the cooking school. He visited his psychologist and saw a friend whom he'd met through the gay hookup site Squirt. Squirt? Yep, Squirt. Yeah, I'm not touching that. He told his Squirt friend someone had been stabbed and he was afraid of walking home at night. Daniel also told him he'd already stalked at least two more men. One he followed home the week after Morgan's murder, almost to his front door, before being told to fuck off. The other, two months before the murder, a man who was having a smoke outside his unit on Spruceton Street, not far from where Daniel lived. Daniel jumped out from behind the bushes, but the man chased him away. Will you be my squirt friend? No! While Daniel was at the cooking school one afternoon, his boss, Brett Deverell, asked him whether he murdered Morgan. He looked Deverell straight in the eye and said he didn't, but added, If I did do it, there's no way they'll ever catch me. Yeah, well, Deverell knew Daniel was a huge fan of uh, the show CSI, so I guess he just pulled his sunglasses down slowly and... uh, Solved, solved everything. On October 8th, exactly one month after the killing of Morgan, Daniel was taken into custody and charged. The Daily Telegraph changed their tune when they learned of Daniel Castle's arrest. Or did they? Sydney's favourite rag ran with the headline, Ladies' Man Murder Twist. Oh, don't you just love a twist? It's not a twist. I know it's not a twist. Eventually they ran with Gay Neighbour Charged with Killing Morgan Huxley. Daniel Jack Kelso was a solitary, skinny, video game-obsessed gay man. Well, that's even more irresponsible. Way to prejudice the jury pool. Well, yeah, and Daniel's lawyer got awfully shitty about this and urged the media to exercise restraint. Some papers got the message. A headline read, Daniel Jack Kelso's lawyer blasts media over coverage of Sydney man Morgan Huxley's murder. That's a long headline. Mm, It's not very catchy. The lawyer also told media, there's been a great deal of interference and undue speculation. Daniel is entitled to the presumption of innocence and the media should respect his family's privacy. Daniel Kelso faced a packed courtroom on Monday, March 16th, 2015. In true psychopath style, he pleaded not guilty and appeared as the one and only defence witness. Oh, so he chose to take the stand. God, they love that shit. Yep, he's certainly a narcissist. And this is what the murdering prick tried to sell, inventing yet another story. Oh, it's always super credible when accused murderers change their story for court. He claimed he struck up a conversation with Morgan on the medium strip of military road, saying he'd been smiling while we were conversing and he lost his smile a bit and said he'd had a stressful week. He claimed that within minutes, Morgan had invited him into his flat to continue talking. Once there, Daniel asked him how he relieved stress. I said, do you want to do things with me? Daniel said he fondled Morgan for about 10 minutes in his bedroom until he felt something hard hit him on the head. He realised someone else was in the room. It looked like this other person and Morgan were fighting. I then got out of there. I stood up and ran out. Was it a really scary blonde lady? (laughs) Yeah, blonde ninjas. Yeah. They're everywhere. They're all over Sydney, blonde oh, ninjas. I know. They get you every time. Like, seriously, oh. I can't fondle anyone in Sydney without being frightened of a blonde lady just doing something bad. Under cross-examination, Crown Prosecutor Peter McGrath asked him why he didn't notice the attacker approaching. Mm. I, I was concentrating on other things, replied a smirking Daniel. 
What a tangled web we weave when we first practice to deceive, declared Crown Prosecutor McGrath, looking Daniel straight in the eye. Oh, he sounds fun. When the court was told of Daniel's high intelligence, above 90% of the population, he again showed the court his creepiest fuck smile. <laughs> Daniel Kelsol claimed he lied to the police about having gone to Morgan's unit because he was scared of having anything to do with the murder. The jury did not know about the second set of lies he told in the Woolworths car park, as this evidence was ruled inadmissible because the interview was not recorded. The cop was told how Daniel Kelsall variously diagnosed and not diagnosed with Asperger's, bipolar, autism and depression by different doctors and psychologists and psychiatrists, was weaned off Seroquel and was also prescribed the antidepressant fluoxetine. The evidence from Daniel's GP and psychologist nearly didn't make it to court. Two days before the trial, Daniel's legal team applied to have the evidence of his doctors excluded on the grounds of protected confidence. But the evidence was found to be highly probative, which mitigated the confidentiality. On March 18th, a jury of five men and seven women deliberated for little more than two hours before they found 22-year-old Daniel Kelsall guilty of murder and one count of indecent assault. Daniel didn't show any emotion while the verdict against him was read, but Morgan's family were heard sobbing. Before he was sentenced, Daniel was visited by a psychologist, Dr Susan Pullman, at the Remand Centre in Silverwater. She reported that his manner was curiously at odds with someone who faced the prospect of a life sentence because he was upbeat, chatty and polite. She asked him, as part of a psychiatric test, to find the word terminate, which he responded, to kill, to completely extinguish the life source. The answer surprised her. She knew the usual response, even from violent criminals, is a simple either to end or to stop. When asked if he felt anger, he replied with, I don't get angry, I go into a rage. The doctor noted that although Daniel described his symptoms of autism, he almost described it too well, like he'd memorised the definition. From what he told her, he appeared to be textbook autistic, but his communication and emotional responses seemed incongruous to this diagnosis. Amongst other things, Daniel kept steady eye contact throughout the entire interview. There was another thing he did too. He'd, he'd talk about behaviours like whenever he took his glasses off, he had to tap them three times. She watched him take his glasses off several times and never tap them. Oh, like, you like things like that. Baker. Yeah. Finally, a test to measure current mood and level of psychological functioning did not reveal any symptoms of depression, anxiety or stress outside of normal limits, which Dr Pullman found interesting given that the testing was carried out only a little more than a week before Daniel was due to appear for sentencing on a charge of murder. The doctor wrote in her report, he was articulate, fluent in his conversation, and there was no evidence of any autistic features or symptoms consistent with ADHD or depression. On the contrary, his attention and concentration abilities fell in the superior range and his mood was upbeat insofar as he appeared to be enjoying the attention. She also wrote that Daniel's prospects of rehabilitation were not good, as in he is not at all remorseful and had no empathy in relation to the death of Morgan Huxley or for the plight of his family. I saw an interview with this doctor and she also said um, if he wasn't in jail, she's pretty sure he would kill again. Mm, yeah, well, I mean, it doesn't sound like anything was off-putting about it to him. The other thing is the overwhelming majority of people with autism are not violent. 
Yeah, that's true. Although violent offenders sometimes try to get away with their actions by claiming to be autistic in court. Mm, That sounds familiar. Snap. Yes, snap. At sentencing, Judge Robert Hume said, This is the most chilling case of murder. Whether the offender killed for the thrill of it, an expression he used the previous year, or as a result of a fantasy or obsession, I am unable to say. What can be said is that it is utterly senseless and needless, and despite the psychiatrist being unable to fathom a reason for it, it must have been the doing of a very disturbed individual. I am satisfied that the killing of Mr Huxley was done for no reason other than to serve some irrational purpose known only to the offender. Daniel Kelsall was sentenced to 40 years and three months. He will first be able to apply for parole in January 2044. He appealed his sentence, calling it manifestly excessive. Three judges in the New South Wales Court of Criminal Appeal disagreed and the appeal was dismissed. After Daniel's appeal failed, Morgan's former long-time girlfriend read a statement on the family's behalf, saying that Morgan was an inspiring, generous and loving young man who was beginning to make his way in the world. Another person close to Morgan told media, He had hopes and dreams that he will never have a chance to realise. He will never get married and enjoy running around the park with his children. His life was stolen by a worthless psychopath. Mm, That's so sad. Hmm. Yeah, it really is. Oh, what a story. Yeah, indeed. I'm glad he's uh, behind bars. Well, Um, yeah. um, Bummer no one picked up on the fact that he was actually going to do it earlier. (sighs) Yeah, yeah, he really fell through the cracks there, didn't he? Yeah. But it seems like he he knew what he was doing and he was trying to set up a, a, a defense for it even before he did it. Well, yeah, I mean, he watched a lot of CSI and all that sort of shit, so he probably thought he could outsmart everyone. Well, he always thought he was the smartest person in the room. Yeah, yeah, they usually do. Hmm. Well, I have but one question. Yes? What is Aussie As? Aussie As are tales of criminal stupidity and bloody legends with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Would you like to hear one? Yes, I would. Well, today I'm going to be talking about a guy who had some red-hot excuses for the cops when he was arrested for drug dealing for the second time in a fortnight. According to the Herald Sun, police started tailing a guy named Kevin Williams after he allegedly ran a red light on Plenty Road in Reservoir, Melbourne at around 3.20am on June 24th this year. They followed Big Kev until he parked in a side street. That's when the officers noticed him and two of his mates rummaging around in the car. When the officers approached, the three stooges acted very nervously. <laughs> Did they box each other's ears and poke each other in the eye going, whoop, 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 yuck, yuck, yuck. Pretty much. When asked what they were up to, one of the men gestured to a dog in the back seat and said they were taking it for a walk. After searching Big Kev's bag, the cops found it contained two grams of methamphetamine, uh, 156 mils of the psychoactive drug GHB and nearly a thousand bucks in cash. They also found a notebook listing drug quantities and dollar values in the bag, along with a shit ton of little Ziploc baggies and Big Kev's charge sheets from his arrest earlier. (laughs) See, Big Kev had only been out of jail for 13 days after he was found parked in the same car in Richmond with another man and three bags full of methamphetamine, five cats of the stuff, a bottle of GHB and over $1,300 in cash. Allegedly. 
Big Cav's lawyers rode the weird excuses express train to court and told the judge that the three men, who were a 42-minute drive from where Big Kev lived, were indeed out walking the dog in a car. And the rummaging around the police had witnessed was the guys trying to calm down the dog, who was apparently freaking out at the sight of a cop car without its lights or siren on. Well, I know when I'm out walking my dog, Pop, if she sees a cop car, she's like, oh, shit, man, it's the fuzz. And then she scampers down a back laneway with her tail between her legs, looking all guilty. I like Pop's voice. Yeah, yeah, I think the, like, Scooby voice was better, right? Yeah. <laughs> the deluded or long-suffering lawyer then told the court that police had not yet proven that the alleged GHB wasn't a type of hand sanitizer. I mean, sure, it's an illegal drug, but not the way I use it. It's my quirky defence against the Rona. See this heroin here? Yes, I use it as soap powder when I do the laundry. My whites have never been brighter. Yeah, look, you can't arrest me and send me to court for carrying a gram of coke. I'm going to combine it with some mashed up peach pits to make an exfoliating facial scrub. Yeah, look, I get that crystal meth is illegal, but it also makes a gentle hair conditioner for my two-year-old. Her curls have never been softer. Magistrate Jennifer Tregent said the allegations were somewhat troubling, but agreed to release him on bail. Bloody pigs, always picking on innocent dog walkers, eh? I've had a gutful. I walk Pop every morning because she loves sniffing everything, but it's becoming quite a process. I don't think they respect how hard it is. I mean, first you've got to find two guys to come with you and then you have to drive 42 minutes away from where you live. Oh, and packing a bag for a dog walk is exhausting. You need at least two grams of methamphetamine, 156 mils of GHB to protect against the Rona, good hand sanitizer that one is, $1,000 in cash, a notebook listing drug quantities and dollar values, a shit ton of Ziploc bags, and the charge sheets from my earlier arrest. It is no longer a simple process. <sighs> well, you need a backpack, I expect, a uh, large backpack. Dude, I, I've actually mm. got a suitcase with wheels on it that I have to just drag <laughs> along with me down by the river. <laughs> what the fuck, man? No one walks a dog in a car. <laughs> also, all the other things. There are other dog parks in, in Richmond. You wouldn't have to drive to Reservoir for a, a, a better dog park, would you? Oh, also, yeah, he doesn't live in Richmond either. He actually lives, like, way out. <laughs> yeah, right. So, so, yeah, going to Richmond to walk the dog wasn't actually plausible life. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a good idea. Yes. I like those. You should do those every week. Oh, maybe I will. Well, you know, anyone who doesn't have any hand sanitizer but happens to have a quantity of GHB is is able to protect themselves against the Rona. You know what? At the chemist, um, they like to make you put the hand sanitizer on before you go in. I mean, if they ever run out, they could just... I'll be like, don't worry. Don't worry, guys. You can take my temperature, but I've already GHB'd my hands. We're sweet. Well, I'm going to stop drinking hand sanitizer. Yeah, I don't That's know. That's for sure. I, just, I love it. It's real trippy, eh? <laughs> <laughs> so this brings us to the end of the episode. But before we go, we'd like to thank some people who took the time out of their busy, busy lives to write us some good reviews. So thank you to, I'm going to leave this one to you, Tara. Yo mama, 0987654321135789 via Apple Podcasts in the United States of America. That wasn't hard. <laughs> well, well done. Uh, we've got bags of gore. We've got Melissa from Australia. 
We've got extra large historian from the United States getting in there again. He's written another review. He is prolific. We have Amy D's Nuts from the United States. We've got Canadian Llama. And Diane Prusens. So thank you so much, all of you. We'd also like to thank Lorraine and our Facebook moderating team. You know who else is awesome? Yes. We love them so much we've been holding monthly giveaways. Our July prize, the Bloody Murder Socks prize pack, was won by Melissa Spears. Woohoo! Congratulations. Now for our August prize, we're giving away a Bloody Murder backpack. The perfect go bag. Fill it with false passports, cash and firearms. Or give it to your daughter and she can be the most popular girl in school. Or at least no one will fuck with her because she has pictures of serial killers and Chopper Reed on her bag. (laughs) I would have taken that. For your chance to win, be a Bloody Murder patron at a level of $5 or above. Now, we've had a bunch of new bloody legends join our Patreon program. So thank you to... Amanda Borelli. James Chowdhury. Susan Bacoy. Sapphire Young. Hannah Tamling, Catherine Axelby, Stephanie Miner, and Caitlin Brecklin. Thank you so much. If you'd like to support us, visit our website, or if you just want to buy us a drink, there's a PayPal donate button there too. And that was my thirsty voice, which will be quenched soon, because who's buying the drinks this week? It's Alison Schaefermeyer. Thank you. She messaged me as well. She's a, she's a bloody legend. She's lovely. I told her one day, if we can ever go to America... We've got to buy the drinks <laughs> yeah, for her because yeah, she's very right. generous. I'm building a submarine that will take us to Utah. Yeah, but your submarine is made of hot dogs, so I'm not sure how waterproof it'll be. <laughs> My hot dog submarine is, is, is good. <laughs> <laughs> sure, why not? I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraban. And this is Bloody Murder. Please don't forget to review us on Apple Podcasts or our Facebook page. You don't need to write a well-crafted essay. Just five stars and a hey baby would still count. And of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us water the fields in which we grow our fucks. You can follow us through our (laughs) Facebook page or join our Facebook group. On Twitter, we're at Bloody Murder Pod. And Instagram, we're bloody underscore murder underscore podcast. Check out our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for news, galleries, more episodes, and links to our threadless merchandise. Thanks for sticking around, and we'll be back in two weeks. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. Tara, I had this dream last night that I went to the moon. Was it made of cheese? Well, no, it was grey and dusty and stuff, but it had buildings on it, but... The thing is, is how I got there, I realised I could swim there. Oh. All I had to do was do a big jump into the air and this, I doggy paddled because I'm not a very good swimmer. <laughs> and I doggy paddled all the way to the moon, but it only took like about, oh, I don't know, 10 minutes. <laughs> and then what happened? And, and I, I went to the moon, there were buildings there and there was a bar there and I was having a drink because I went up there with a friend, I don't know who it was, it could have been you. Oh, I doubt it. And then, and then, <laughs> we, were gonna, and then we were gonna swim back home but it was cloudy, so we couldn't see which way the moon, where the where the Earth was. Uh-oh. But you know, the, earth, the the moon doesn't have any atmosphere; it doesn't get cloudy there, so I don't know about that. Ah, uh, so your anyway, dreams like not even real science, God. So then we, so we got back to Earth, and I was saying to people, NASA has spent billions of dollars building these rockets, and they take like like a, you know a day to get to the moon. I doggy paddled down like ten minutes. <laughs> That's awesome. I hope I hope it was a fun trip. It was a great trip.
Hey, so we got an email from a reader named Hannah the other day. She wrote, Hey kids, I'm Hannah from Minneapolis, Minnesota. I've been listening to Bloody Murder for about three years now. You're still one of my favourites. And when asked for my true crime podcast recommendations, you're always in my top three. I mean, Case File, come on! I don't know if that was like a positive for Case File or a negative for Case File. I'm guessing positive. You think positive? Positive. Yeah, I'm guessing guessing positive as well. Yeah, I mean, Case File's three, True Crime Island, and then number one, (laughs) Bloody Murder, right? I think there's a lot of us tied for one. I mean, you know, all our friends probably. Anyway, the reason I'm writing is to let you know that in episode 160, you guys did a thing that made me absolutely lose my fucking mind. At one point, as Tara narrates, the killer asks the woman to spend the night with him. So that was the Caesar Baroni, like Bundy's buddy episode. Barney, unsurprisingly, does his usual... Hey, baby. However, a moment later, when Tara explains that the woman in question was already on a date with someone else, he does a quieter, sadder, calmer... Hey, baby. The juxtaposition of these two quips was absolutely brilliant. In fact, I loved it so much that I immediately downloaded the episode along with an audio audio editing app and painstakingly cut out those two clips. After much trial and error, I have managed it. Now when I get a general notification, I hear Barney go, Hey, baby. And when I receive a text message, he says more softly, Hey, baby. <laughs> yes, I always get looks, and I love it. <laughs> I remember that. That, oh, that I was your idea to I do it. I think I might have written it. <laughs> yeah, that was your idea. <laughs> oh, I love that. That was one of um, one of my favourite moments listening to that episode as well, actually. But uh, yeah, thanks so much, Hannah. Yeah, that that was definitely a, that was definitely a good moment to me too. <laughs> it was. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 